0: It's a short text, but what it lacks in verses, it makes up for in commas. 1 Peter chapter 10. we We're saw so many commas. I'm a guy that's given to commas, but this even takes me out of breath. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that in the thing with uh, which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would uh, make this text a part of the fabric of our lives, that in those days in which uh, it is not popular maybe even not even legal, to be believers in the Lord Jesus, that we would stand firm in a way that will bring honor and glory to him, especially in the day of his return. Pray for Tom as he speaks, and we pray for the word of God as it's proclaimed throughout the world today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning. Up to this point... In his first epistle, Peter has focused primarily on what we need to know to live in a manner that is honoring to God. He's told us of our miraculous rebirth into a living hope, a hope that is always fixed on the grace that will be revealed to us when our Lord Jesus returns in glory. It's a hope that radically redefines the way we live here and now. Peter has also talked about the trials and testing that we should expect while we're here. And how God will use that testing to refine us and to glorify Himself through us. He commanded us to be holy, always aware of how dearly costly our salvation was to our Savior and to His Father. He commanded us to fervently love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to long for the pure, unadulterated milk of the Word, the Word by which we came to life and by which we now grow. He told us about God's choice and precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ, upon whom He is building His spiritual house using us as the bricks. And He told us, who we are, and whose we are. We are the chosen lineage of God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people singled out by God to be His treasured possession forever. And then finally, in light of that marvelous identity, He told us that we have a God-given assignment. And that is to proclaim the excellencies of the God who has done all these things for us, who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous, astounding, amazing light. Now, beginning with chapter 2, verse 11, Peter is going to shift his focus from what we need to know to how we are to live. He's going to stay there for the rest of the epistle. How we are to live. The two verses that we're looking at this morning serve as a preface, a summation in advance of everything that Peter's going to say in the rest of this letter. The rest of the letter is all, of, all about glorifying God as excellent strangers while we remain here looking forward to our Lord's glorious return. Verses 11 and 12 that we'll look at today give us the big picture exhortation to be excellent strangers and then the rest of the letter tells us what what that actually looks like how that excellence plays out in real life in chapter 2 verse 12 to chapter 3 verse tw- uh, 2 verse 13 to 312 peter will tell us what it looks like to be excellent in our submission and then in 313 to 511 he'll tell us what it looks like to be excellent in the midst of suffering now that's kind of a cruising altitude view Of where Peter will be going in the rest of this great epistle here in chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 he urges us to be excellent strangers and there are four parts to his exhortation first be mindful of your excellent identity as aliens and strangers second be excellent inwardly then be excellent outwardly in your behavior and finally He speaks of the impact of being excellent strangers. First, be mindful of your excellent identity as beloved aliens and strangers. Now Peter could have saved a bunch of words in verse 11 by simply saying, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts. But instead he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Is this urgent exhortation in a passionate and personal reminder of all that he has just been saying in the preceding verses about our new identity in Christ. And he must do so. Because the big picture exhortations in these two verses... And the specific exhortations in all the verses that follow in this epistle are utterly dependent upon that new identity. Our amazing identity in Jesus Christ qualifies us to be called Beloved. That is a marvelous, marvelous salutation. That same adjective is used eight times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, always in reference to Jesus as God's Beloved son. But the writers of the New Testament epistles use that same descriptive word 50 times, more than 50 times, in reference to us. (laughs) Isn't that great? To the saints to whom they were writing. It is overwhelmingly the most common salutation in the epistles. And it is used by Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, and the writer of Hebrews, all of them, in reference to the redeemed of God. Every man, woman, and child who has been redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is called beloved. Beloved of whom? Who's doing the loving here? Well, first and foremost, we are beloved of God. In Romans 1, 7, Paul said that he was writing that great epistle to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. But Paul and the other epistle writers also frequently refer to God's redeemed people as my beloved. In other words, beloved of the person who's writing the letters to them. And John makes a huge point in the third and fourth chapters of First John. That all of us who belong to Jesus Christ love one another. The first and most wonderful thing for us to know and to understand about our new identity in Jesus Christ is that we are loved by God and we are loved by God's true people. The second aspect of our new identity to which Peter draws attention in verse 11 is that we are aliens and strangers. Now, this isn't just a passing observation. It's front and center in every (laughs) exhortation that Peter is going to set before us throughout the rest of this letter. It's absolutely critical for us to understand and to have firmly in mind day by day, moment by moment, that we're not from around here. When God saved us through faith in Jesus Christ, He remade us. He gave us new birth. And He gave us new citizenship. He made us citizens of His heavenly kingdom. We are no longer citizens of this cursed world. We are heavenly ambassadors sent into this cursed world. We need to be very clear about the fact that we're not from around here. We are aliens, foreigners, sent by God to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into a darkness that would otherwise be entirely devoid of any light. One dear brother who has spent much time overseas shared with us earlier this week some of his experiences as a stranger in a strange land. He said, if you live in a place in which you have no citizenship, guess what? You really have no rights. He said, if you do business in a place in which you have no citizenship, and one of your customers doesn't like the way your company handled a particular transaction, his complaint to the right government official could easily get you tossed right out of that country. And unless your business, your company, has enough clout with that country, with someone official, could get the whole company tossed out. You could buy a house, but you might have to walk away from it tomorrow. At one point while living overseas, that brother found a good deal on a car that was manufactured in 1999. When he tried to finalize the purchase, he was informed that foreigners can only buy cars that are five years old or newer. In other words, foreigners have to spend a lot of money to buy a car. Another missionary has told us about how very predictable it is in certain cultures. For foreigners to be taken advantage of in the worst way, even when they're conducting the simplest of transactions, like getting a car repaired or buying a generator. When we hear stories like this, we think, "Wow, I'm glad I live in America, where the laws that protect my inalienable rights are actually enforced, and where I have Angie's List and Amazon reviews to ensure that I get good bang for my buck. But guess what? Even if you were born in the United States and you never set foot outside of the United States, you will be a stranger and an alien even in your own neighborhood. Are you on board with that? The one you represent, the one you are here to show off and to proclaim is a stone of stumbling and a rock Of offense. He is an offense. He is a provocation to this entire culture. To this entire place. No matter where you go on the surface of this globe. This is not His home. So it's not your home. No place on earth is home to us until Christ returns and makes all things new and Reclaims all that he has created between now and then, the alienation of Christians in the eyes of the world 's culture is going to get a lot worse. Revelation 13 uh, there was a quote from that one this morning thirteen eight describes a time when any person on the face of the earth who does not swear allegiance to and bear the mark of rulers who despise God and who murder god 's people will not be allowed, allowed to buy or to sell anything. Now some of you may say, well, according to my understanding of eschatology, I'm not going to be here when that happens, so I'm not too worried about that. But brothers and sisters, there are believers in ISIS-controlled regions of Syria and Iraq who are experiencing that now. Now, are you on board with that? Peter will make it very clear as we progress through this letter that if we actually do what God has called us to do, we will certainly suffer for doing so. That's the normal Christian life. The culture in which we live as aliens will see us as the enemy of the very things that it holds to be most valuable. Even right here in verse 12, Peter understood that the believers to whom he was writing were already being slandered as evildoers. They were slandered as evildoers by the pagans in whose midst they lived, not to mention by the very religious and pious looking Jewish leaders. Now the word evildoers is pretty self-explanatory. It means doers of evil. It's not what you call people that you find annoying. It's what you call people that you find to be imminently threatening. Toward the end of the reign of Nero, who was already emperor of Rome when Peter wrote this letter, Christians were falsely accused by that emperor of burning down large parts of the city of Rome, resulting in enormous loss of property and loss of life. And with that false accusation as justification, many Christians in Rome were rounded up and arrested. Some were covered with animal skins and put in amphitheaters with lions and ripped apart as a public spectacle. Others were used as torches to light the streets of Rome at night. We live in a place in which the rule of law still holds considerable sway for now. And lions are not indigenous to this continent. But beloved, in case you haven't noticed, in case you haven't noticed, the days of culturally acceptable Christianity have come to a screeching halt. And there are Christians in many other parts of the world thinking, (laughs) welcome to our world, Americans, American Christians. God says that's the way it must be. For us who belong to him if we are truly following Christ. Are you on board with that? please track with me on this because it's of very great importance. If you are a child of God and if you are living out your true identity day by day, those who love this world will hate you. Jesus made it eminently clear in John 15 when He said to His disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, which they didn't, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know the one who sent me. From the glories of heaven into this cursed and corrupt and decaying place where He, Jesus, was as foreign as foreign gets. And now Jesus has redeemed us and He has made us citizens of that same heavenly kingdom from which He was sent. He has made us sons and daughters of the Most High God and He has sent us into this world just as He was sent into this world. The world hated Him and He promises that the world will hate us because it hated Him. You and I... Beloved, are not just strangers in this world. We are unwelcome strangers. Read Hebrews 11 and you'll see just how unwelcome. You don't have to try to be peculiar. You are peculiar. You don't have to try to be an offense to this world. Some Christians think that that's part of the assignment. But if you're following Christ, you are an offense precisely because the one that you're following and imitating and representing is the greatest offense to the way of this world that has ever existed. Are you on board with being an unwelcome stranger no matter where you live in this world? Or are you instead holding fast to the rights and privileges that belong to those who belong here? We need to know with great clarity and we need to embrace without hesitation who we are, whose we are, where we're from, and why we're still here. First, we need to be willing strangers and aliens. Secondly, we need to be excellent inwardly to abstain from fleshly lusts. Peter, Peter's urgent exhortation to us as those aliens and strangers comes in two parts. First, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And then we'll see in a moment, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. My dear brother Paul Johannan pointed out to me Wednesday that Peter's two-part exhortation here calls us to excellence both in the inner man and in the outer Man, it addresses both our inward desires and our outward behavior. First Peter says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. So what are fleshly lusts? Well, in the simplest terms, they are desires, longings for things that dishonor God. 1 John 2:16 says for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father but from the world sinful lust takes many many forms it applies to every longing that treats the things of this world as sources of blessing in and of themselves instead of as instruments of blessing to be enjoyed on terms approved by and honoring to the one true source of all blessing. When we seek, James 1.17, by the way, says every good thing, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When we seek blessing in the instruments instead of in the source, we always slip into the realm of fleshly lusts. And we always miss the blessing for which the instrument of blessing was created. That applies to everything from sex, to money, to marriage, to art, to music, to alcohol, to entertainment to leisure, to sports, to positions of power over others, and to every other thing that you see around you. All of which, by the way, among all the things that God has created, according to First Timothy 4, all of which are good in the sight of God when they are treated on His terms, when they are enjoyed on His terms, to glorify Him. That's why they're here, to point us to the blesser. Is there a difference between lust and sin? I believe the answer that we find to that question throughout the New Testament is not that fleshly lust isn't sin. Lust is sin. The longing for things that dishonor God is sin. But lust happens in the inner man. It's the precursor to all manner of outward sins. The desires, the cravings for fleshly, worldly self-indulgence inevitably lead to outward sins if those lusts are not denied. If they are not denied. James 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James is not saying that lust is not sin. When he speaks of lust giving birth to sin, he's saying he's talking about sin as the outward expression of sinful lust. He's talking about visible sins. But you start sinning against God before you ever act on that lust. How do I know? Because Jesus said so. When you allow your attention and affections to dwell upon something that violates the character of God, you're already sinning. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, everyone who looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. You don't have to flirt with her. You don't have to hit on her. You don't have to have sex with her to violate God's commandment against adultery. Your lust for her has already accomplished that violation and if you're lusting after a woman in an online photo or a video or on a TV screen you are already committing adultery and if you're married you are violating the sanctity of your covenant with your wife we need to stop pretending that our sinful self indulgence isn't really sin We don't get to change God's definition of holiness to suit our culture or to suit ourselves. How will we, who all struggle with these things, all of us, me included, of course, how will we ever manage to abstain from fleshly lusts, especially in an age in which we don't even have to get up from our chairs to encounter powerful enticements to indulge those lusts. How can we actually become more successful at saying no to sins that we find very, very attractive? Well I believe there are three key parts to God's answer to that question right here through Peter. The first is the very thing that we've been looking at that we've been looking at up to this point. We abstain from fleshly lusts as strangers and aliens. A clear understanding and embrace of our set-apart identity as born-again, redeemed agents and image-bearers of God is absolutely indispensable both to inward and to outward excellence as children of God. That's what makes all the difference between legalistic, joyless, burdensome obedience and liberated Joyful, fervent obedience. See, when we're actually mindful of what we deserved from God and of all that we have been given by God, including our very identity as His people, we find ourselves continually astonished. And we find ourselves grateful, eager to serve Him, to please Him. So the first answer to how we abstain from fleshly lusts is that we must always be mindful of our new identity. The second facet of the how is to understand the impact of indulging those lusts. Peter tells us that for us who belong to Jesus Christ, our fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. That's a daily, moment-by-moment reality. We wake up every morning behind enemy lines with a fierce spiritual battle raging not just around us, beloved, but within us. If we act as if that battle does not exist, we become sitting ducks for the deceptive and very, very attractive wiles of Satan. In 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter's going to say, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But resist him. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not alone. The prince of the power of the air and of the airwaves never rests. And He has more weapons at His disposal than we can even keep track of. It is very important for us to understand what's at stake when it comes to the thoughts and affections that we entertain and dwell upon moment by moment. Brothers and sisters, this is... Is war. Rejoice that you're on the winning side, but don't ever forget that you and I live on the front lines of a pitched battle that will not be over until the victor returns. The third facet of the how, how we avoid being controlled by fleshly lust, is not so popular even among Christians. I should probably say it's not so popular, particularly among Christians, but Peter presents it unapologetically. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Abstain! Stop indulging fleshly lusts. Say no to them. Isn't that what he says? We bristle at forceful exhortations to stop sinning because we're concerned about our tendency towards self-dependence. We're worried that we're going to revert easily to legalistic, checklist-based Christianity that's all about dependence on the flesh instead of dependence on the Spirit. So we put such exhortations kind of in the periphery and we resolve to simply love God. Confident that if we do all the do's and don'ts, we'll take care of themselves. If that's the case, why are there so many do's and don'ts in the New Testament? Peter very straightforwardly says, abstain from fleshly lusts. And there are countless commands and exhortations, strong exhortations in the New Testament epistles that include language like, put away from you. Let such behavior not be named among you. Do not be partakers with those who practice such things. Are we to treat such exhortations and commands as if they don't mean what they actually say? No. We are to obey them. We are to obey them knowing full well that God's commands to His redeemed children are gracious, and <laughs> that when God gives commands to His redeemed children, He enables what He commands. He enables what He commands. We, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, 3, was read this morning, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3, Paul says we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and we possess the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated Him above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come. Is that enough power for you? Why would we think that we don't have the authority and the power to say no to fleshly lusts? Why would we think that saying no is inherently legalistic? Beloved, abstain from fleshly lusts, knowing and prayerfully acknowledging always that the one who gives you the power to do so is God the Holy Spirit who lives within you. We get so worried about figuring out the mechanism of sanctification that we don't Act in a sanctified way. Say no with authority and with great confidence in the Spirit who indwells you that you might live excellently for Christ. But also know that the exhortation to abstain, to stop the things that dishonor God is only half of His prescription here. We have a superior assignment. We have an amazing assignment that pushes fleshly self-indulgence right out the door. It leaves no room for it. It is the, the expulsive power of a superior affection and of a superior assignment. And that's where Peter goes next. <laughs> the second half of God's prescription for excellence as children of God, is to be excellent outwardly. Keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers. Our new identity is still very much in focus in verse 12. As those who are not from around here, we are called to keep our behavior excellent among those who are currently from around here. Now what excellent behavior... Does Peter call us to display to an unbelieving world? (laughs) Well, stay tuned because everything Peter's going to say from verse 13 of this chapter all the way to the end of the epistle will answer that question for you. So I'm going to go to the next question. How do we keep our behavior excellent? Again, there are three facets to the how and they look just like the ones we just saw. First, Remember your excellent identity. You can copy and paste the phrase, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers from the beginning of verse 11 to the beginning of verse 12. Because it applies to the exhortations in both of these verses as well as to every other exhortation throughout the rest of the letter. In other words, to do what Peter is exhorting us to do, We must be always, always mindful of all that he's laid out for us up to this point in the letter. Just like in Paul's letters, practice builds on theology. Truth tells us how to live. The truth about God, the truth about us, the truth about what God has done for us in Christ. Always be mindful of who you are, whose you are, where you're from, and why you're still here. Secondly, we must know the impact of keeping our behavior excellent. <laughs> now, I'll get to that impact in about 30 seconds, because I want to spend some, some time there. But first, I want to make sure we acknowledge the third facet of the how. The third piece of how <laughs> we come to behave excellently <laughs> is, again, by simply obeying God's exhortation to behave excellently. There is nothing legalistic about resolving to obey what God commands, acknowledging always that the power and authority that turn that resolve into reality comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. The commands that God gives us never exist in a vacuum. They never stand by themselves with nothing to energize or enable or motivate them. But, beloved, they do stand. And the God who has enabled us to obey all that He commands intends for us to do so. We will fail. Read John 1 John 1.9. But it won't be God's fault when we do. It won't be because He has not given us the power and the authority and the enablement to choose rightly. To wrap up, I want to consider what Peter presents in verse 12 as the impact, the very practical goal of our excellent behavior. And this goal is itself a key factor in the how. Knowing what God will do with our excellent behavior is a huge factor in our motivation and our resolve to behave excellently. The goal, the impact, is that those who slander us as evildoers today may, on account of the good deeds that they observe in us today, come to glorify God in the day of visitation. There's a very interesting thing that happens with that word visitation when you compare its use in the Old and New Testaments. In both Testaments, it applies, it refers to a visible, tangible intervention by God in his creation in the lives of human beings. In the Old Testament, those interventions include both God's acts of judgment and his acts of deliverance, of salvation, past, present, and future. But in the New Testament, there are only four other references to to God visiting men besides this one in 1 Peter 2.12. And all four are in the Gospel of Luke. And all four are talking about Jesus coming from heaven to earth to save and redeem. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that Peter's reference here to the future day of visitation doesn't include Christ's work of judgment. I think it probably does include His judgment. But the goal of which Peter speaks here is that when Christ comes next time, unbelievers who slander us now as evildoers will glorify God then. God is using our excellent behavior now to draw the souls of lost men and women and children to faith in His Son so that they will be eternally saved. I'll grant that God will be glorified even in condemnation. But I don't believe that's Peter's point here. I believe he's talking about God using our obedience to move people out of darkness into light. We, of course, are not sovereign over the hearts of men. We don't save people and we don't condemn people. But we are accountable to God to live as agents and image bearers of God, of Christ who has so marvelously saved us. Every single thing we do, every single thing that we do, either honors God or dishonors Him. There's no neutral activity in this earth, in this life. Our behavior either adorns the doctrine of God, the revealed truth concerning God our Savior, or it denies and undermines that doctrine fortunately (laughs) you and i don't have to convince lost men of anything that's god's job but our proclamation must be a convincing proclamation it must be worthy of being believed If we proclaim with our mouths the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and then we behave as if we're still fond of the darkness, we give lost men no reason whatsoever to listen to our proclamation and we give them every reason not to. How convincing is it to unbelievers in our culture when we say, for instance, that it is well with our souls entirely Because of Christ's accomplished work on the cross and then we grumble and complain right along with those unbelievers about how bad our earthly leaders are. And we act as if our well-being actually depends on what those leaders do or don't do. I've handled that test badly more times than I can count. But one day, very recently, I was sitting in a waiting room for 45 minutes while the latest news about the presidential race was flashing across across a big screen TV in front of me. The dear man sitting right beside me started to wax eloquent about how awful things have gotten with politics in the U.S. and how badly our nation has declined morally and socially just within the last 10 years. I had my Bible with me in my ever-present backpack that my wife calls my man purse. So I took it out and I flipped over to Psalm 146. And I told that gentleman, I said, I'm right with you, right there with you on your assessment of all that, but there's one thing that makes me very, very optimistic. And then I read these three short verses out loud to him. Do not trust in princes. In mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who remains forever faithful. I told him I have strong opinions about the presidential race and about many specifics of our national policy, but I told him that I know without a doubt that our well-being doesn't depend on any of those things, not one bit. I told him that my confidence is only in the God who made everything that we see, and he never disappoints. He quickly changed the subject. But within just a few minutes, he was right back to talking about how scary the whole state of affairs is in the United States. So I told him again (laughs) that I'm really thankful that my well-being is rock-solid certain because I believe in Jesus Christ and I know he keeps his promises. I don't trust in what any man will do, and it doesn't really matter that much to me. I care about justness. In the culture, I care about justness in the world. But the God who is going to accomplish justice in this world is going to do so when His Son returns to this earth. We should, Brothers, we should pursue the things that reflect the just and righteous character of God. But we should not fear when the world turns away from those efforts. Anyway, once again, he quickly changed the subject. This time, I guess he learned his lesson. He he didn't return to those lamentations about the State of the Union. I didn't get to see any evidence that what I shared with that dear man registered at all in his heart. But I know this. It would have been very easy and a lot more comfortable for me to spend those 45 minutes that I was sitting beside him indulging my own fleshly tendencies by mirroring and happily expanding upon his complaints. That's what I used to do. Would have been a real knee-slapper of a bonding experience between me and him, because we were pretty much on the same page on the political side. And if I had done that, that conversation would have been of absolutely no use to God. But you know what was so cool about that conversation? All God wanted me to do is say what I know to be true. All I had to do was proclaim the excellencies of the one who has so marvelously freed me from any fear about what powerful men may do or not do. That's it. Just say it. That, and of course, praying for him before and after I opened my mouth and several times since. See, all we have to do, beloved, is speak the truth in love. In absolute dependence on the one and only Savior of men. The only one who's sovereign over the hearts of men. But as we do, our demonstration of the transforming power of the gospel must match our proclamation. Our demonstration must match our proclamation. And that's where Peter's going to spend the rest of this letter on that demonstration. In these two foundation laying verses, Peter urges us as the people of God to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. And to keep our behavior excellent among unbelievers. But Peter's not here anymore. Today, right here, Right now, it is the Holy Spirit who moved Peter to write those words who is asking you, are you going to do this or not? The one exhorting us is the one who enables what he commands. So are we going to do this or are we just going to talk about doing it? You and I, may very well be the only image of Christ that many people get to see up close. If we're willing to do what Peter exhorts in these verses, that image of Christ that unbelievers see in you and in us together will be powerfully used by God to call others out of the darkness into His astounding light. That's why we're still here. May we resolve by the power of His indwelling Spirit to shine brightly. Dear Father, burn these words again into our hearts. This is a a very powerful couple of verses that that, uh, clarifies why we're here. May we take it seriously. May we take it dependently upon you never upon ourselves but father may we respond may we respond with obedience with genuine day by day obedience we ask this in jesus precious name